Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast. You are now listening to season seven of the show. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Piers Linney. Piers studied law and accounting at the University of Manchester. He secured his training contract and qualified as a solicitor with city law firm SJ Berwin at the time. Piers then worked in investment banking at the likes of Barclays and Credit Suisse. After transitioning from banking, Piers focused on entrepreneurship, including ventures in corporate finance, technology, communication, and media. In 2013, Piers joined BBC's Dragon's Den as an investor, with his most successful investment on the show being Wombly. Piers has a wealth of experience as an entrepreneur, advisor, trustee, executive, non-executive board member, and more. In 2013, Piers was recognized as one of the top 100 most influential Black Britons, listed in the JP Morgan-sponsored power list, And in 2014, he was also awarded Entrepreneur of the Year at the Black British Business Awards sponsored by EY. In 2018, he was named one of the UK's top 20 ethnic minority executives. And in 2021, he founded Moblox, a content and community platform. And earlier this year, in 2023, Piers co-founded Implement AI, a next generation consultancy tailored for small and medium sized businesses. So a very warm welcome, Piers. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you on the show. And before we dive into all your amazing projects experiences to date, we do have a customary icebreaker question here on the Legally Speaking podcast, which is... On the scale of one to 10, 10 being very real, what would you rate the hit TV series Suits in terms of its reality if you've seen it of the law? I've seen it. It's probably probably more realistic compared to US law. I think it's probably a four in terms of the UK. I think think you'd have too many HR issues. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think a four is very justified. And with that, we'll move swiftly on to talk all about you. So would you mind telling us, Piers, a bit about your background and career journey? So I'm um, my mum's from Barbados, the Windrush generation. Dad was a a Mancunian lad, grew up in Manchester and Cheatham Hill. And um, I was born in Stoke-on-Trent. I only know myself, John Cordwell and Robbie Williams from (laughs) Stoke-on-Trent. And um, (laughs) And then I moved up to Lancashire when I was kind of nine. My dad got a job in Manchester. And I, I grew up in a mill town in Lancashire, quite a small one, called Bake Up, Rosendale. And it's kind of nestled between kind of Rochdale, Burnley, Bolton, Berry, that kind of area, if, if you know it. And I grew up in a, in a very small town. And um, I wanted to go, I was always like, this is on the side, like paper round. And what I mean, like where I actually disintermediated the local newsagent by buying papers wholesale living in myself rather than having a paper round. And then um, I, I sort of wanted to um, go into business, but no one really knew what the hell I was talking about. Everyone said, oh, you should become an accountant, which is uh, not the best advice. But I, I loved history. So I, I kind of was fascinated by the Industrial Revolution because I was kind of surrounded with this landscape that was kind of scarred by it. And, um, and that fascinated me and the kind of the, the industrialists of the age. And, and then through that, I got quite interested in history. And then through that, I, I did a history at A-level. And I thought, well, what do I... What do I do? And I was doing a maths A-level and I thought, I hate maths. <laughs> I hate A-level maths. It's not for me. And I kind of, I kind of, I've got a history. I did my A-levels twice, did some A-levels twice. And I kind of dropped maths essentially. Uh, and then I had to take a, I did, I forgot to do A-level at night. So I only had two. I went to get into Manchester University, gave me a place. So I did a law A-level, which was quite new then, I think. Um, and I did this sort of law A-level and I was fascinated by it in the law. because it's kind of like a bit of history, you know, the jurisprudence. It just fascinated me. So, and then I said I wanted to be a lawyer. So I ended up at Manchester University doing an accounting and law degree. So I still hadn't quite given up the accounting. 
And I did, and that was a four year degree, which is a good thing because uh, all my friends left in the third year, and I did some work in the fourth year. But then I, I, I wanted, I wanted to be a lawyer, and it was very difficult. It's always different then. It's a bit more been democratized now. All the big firms, and it was quite you know, like Oxbridge. And I was sort of, I was just like, you know, mixed race kid from a mill town, you know, did his A-levels twice, had to do his A-levels twice. But I got a quite a good degree in Manchester University and, um, got, you know, I got a 2-1. And I, I did a placement as part of my degree in a, a Manchester law firm. It's called Davis Arnold Cooper, which is like a shipping sort of insurance kind of firm, really, but a general commercial. And that was in Manchester in Fountain Street, I remember this. They actually gave me a place. So they gave me a training contract offer. That was like amazing, but it was in Manchester. And I went to law school in Store Street in London, you know, off uh, Tottenham Court Road. And when I got to London, I thought, no, <laughs> I want to be a lawyer in London. And I'd kind of, I didn't really know about the city. You know, I, I, meet, I meet young people now and I said, what do you want to do? And they've got their life planned out and they understand, you know, all these all this sort of social capital that I just didn't have. They understand the city. I didn't even know. I did a course in corporate finance, but didn't really understood it. And, um, and at the time, um, I applied, I think, to 68 law firms, some admittedly twice. 68 law firms it's quite funny now because they've all merged together that's 68 it's probably like 20 now and um sj berwin was the only firm that gave me an offer and that was kind of because in the meeting i kind of said look give me a chance if i'm rubbish you know you can get rid of me and i think they quite like the fact i was quite cocky and then berwin's was uh, at the time there's, there's berwin Leighton, obviously and then there's sj berwin and um it was very entrepreneurial firm it was focused on venture capital uh, the guy there negotiated the LPGP, you know, tax structure with HMRC. And I ended up at this firm, which was um, very me. But in that firm, I was doing deals. I remember the one particularly, I think it was guys that bought Tottenham Hotspur, kind of offshore billionaire. And there's a guy, is it Daniel Levy or Daniel, that exact name. And they were doing this deal. I remember sitting there thinking, I want to be the person doing the deal. There was always, this was kind of MBO age. It was pre-tech. There's always people like these funds doing management buyouts and the management team. And I thought, I want to be the management or the investor. I don't want to be the person, I don't want to be the lawyer. And I was quite good at it, but I, I always knew that I was never going to be the person that could dot every I and cross every T. And my natural, my kind of natural state is kind of shoot from the hip. But law, and, and then I went into banking, which we can talk about if you want to. And I went into banking after that. But law and banking gave me that training where if I need to, I can drill down into detail. And it's a skill, a skill I've, I've, you know, I use to this day, but, you know, um, but I left law when I qualified because um, I realized it wasn't long-term what I wanted to do. Investment banking was far more interesting. And a friend of mine said to me, you should go into investment banking. That, that sounds more like you. And again, I said to him, what's investment banking? <laughs> Didn't have a clue. <laughs> and that was kind of the story of my life. And then I went for another whole, was another whole story, another whole process. To get into banking, I ended up at BZW, which is kind of like Barclays Capital now. They sold it to Credit Suisse. So I ended up at Credit Suisse when it was solvent, um, doing um, M&A. So I'd gone from this comprehensive school in Lancashire where everyone said, you know, what, what are you talking about? You want to go into business? All the way to ended up, you know, earning more money than I could spend. bought my first sports card, a debit card in, in Canary Wharf at Credit Suisse as an investment banker. And everyone, and, and I... I I advise Sky on diversity and inclusion, so I've learned a lot about it over the years. And I was what they call, I covered a lot, where I changed my accent. So I said, what, a northern accent? I guess more northern after a few cocktails. But um, I got a northern accent, and I, I pretended, or, or I didn't let on that that was my background. And in 2011, I did the Secret Millionaire program. When it went out, I was driving around this little mill town in my Porsche Cayenne, 
And my phone lit up when it was aired saying, I never knew you went to a school like that. I never knew you grew up in a place like that. And I was kind of like, you never asked. But that was, and, and that's something that, um, you know, you shouldn't have to do actually, because it, it just, just soaks up energy. That's kind of my journey into the city. And then after that, I went into business. Yeah. And I mean, what, what a fascinating journey as well. I think there's lots of lessons there. And I think one of them is obviously, you know, persistent. You mentioned 68 law firms, you know, it's so competitive, particularly a lot of our listeners are trying to break in, you know, actually just making sure you, there always is going to be that one. All you need is that one. And you gave that great example. Then you've got that one with SJ Berwin. And then, as you say, you transitioned into um, investment banking, picked up all these skills. So I want to kind of pick up from, from there then, because once you'd been to sort of Credit Suisse, you then moved into sort of entrepreneurial ambitions talk us through some of your ventures because you've done stuff finance you've done stuff in technology media telco you know tell us about some of these different businesses you know and what lessons you've had from establishing various companies so i was always kind of in business so as a uh, when i was i said when i was sort of 30 i had a paper round right in lancashire in those days when it snowed it covered your car so it was like it was hard work and i realized that on sunday they didn't deliver the news agent you could go and buy them Nobody wants to get out of bed and go to a news agent on a Sunday morning. So I literally bought the papers wholesale, delivered them. And, and through that, I, I was earning five pounds a week and it went up to like 15 quid on a Sunday morning. Yeah, a bit more hard work, a bit of prep and stuff. And I kind of realized that if you find um, a kind of, a, we can add value to someone's life, my paper round customers, and you work hard, you can make some money. And I wanted to buy a BMX. It was kind of like a, a micro wealth creation, but I learned a lot through that process. And after that, I was doing, you know, like door-to-door sales of better way. Probably, probably won't, even you will remember that. Back in the day, selling pots and pans quite literally uh, from door-to-door. And then I learned about, you know, dealing with people. And then the university, were doing various things, like, you know, parties and stuff like that. And then at law school, I was doing company formations. And also when I was a trainee solicitor, we were doing um, film finance with a friend of mine, EAS Film Structures with a friend of mine. And he, he, he led it, but he went on to run um, Lionsgate Film. Big, he still is, big wig in the film industry. So I was always doing something on the side. And then after, when I was a, when I was a banker, I was kind of, had some sort of, they call them side hustles now, don't they? Um, which they were for me. They weren't really, never intended to really step into them. I was always helping people because I had this sort of, I had this, this skill set, you know, the law, quite entrepreneurial I had the numbers now I understood um accounting I could write nice presentations mostly in banking you just do powerpoints but quite frank it's excel <laughs> and then it's putting it all into powerpoint with some nice slides and often the the repro department couldn't do it on time so you ended up being there at four in the morning filling around with powerpoint but I had this kind of skill set if you wanted to build a business or raise money I had all the tools um so and then I left banking in 2000 took my bonus and off I went and um we set up a dot com so that was my first real entree. And in those days, I think as I left the building, we raised like 700. Oh, how the world has changed. And I kind of went into the dot-coms. So involved in quite a few as just before the crash. So then I saw a whole economic cycle, you know, raising money, hiring people, building a business, creating a product, going to market, firing people, uh, cutting your product line, a uh, down round, convertible round. And then I, I kind of left. And luckily my business partner, we had quite a, Difficult time doing that together, but I, I kind of left and family could fund it. They were reasonably wealthy. And I actually met him again in Miami about, about two months ago, after about 50, crazy. And then I, and then after that, I was kind of like, well, what do I do now? So my plan was always, right, I can go into, you look at the first like internet, internet 1.0. Most of the founders then were professionals, like management consultants or people who had money. They had no risk really. And I kind of thought, well, I've got enough money now to take two years out. If it doesn't, if it doesn't 
it doesn't work out, it all goes wrong, I can always go back to the city. And of course, after the dot-com crash, my bridge back was just incinerated because <laughs> they fired everyone. So then it was kind of like, oh, right. So then the only, the only way to go was kind of forwards. And I ended up, um, someone who was in banking, after getting involved in, in a, a media music business, who so ended up doing like DJ management and record labels and digital rights. It's quite interesting, but didn't stay there for very long. And then I, well, what do I do? Uh, so I had this skill set. So I built a website, all like Goldman Sachs, went off to the US and I learned about hedge funds and private placements. And I was doing SPACs in 2002. I think SPACs is a new thing, they're not. And um, I kind of built a corporate finance business. And one of the partners who trained me, um, SJ Berwin, he's actually got his own big law firm now. He, um, he had a, a, a sort of a 2000 venture capital fund. And around that, we built this sort of private placement business, bringing hedge fund money um, to the UK, raise finance for companies. I became like an estate agent for hedge fund cash. And I made a, made a bit of money there. And it kind of, but over time, I was still investing in businesses, helping people start businesses. They began to grow, they began to scale up. Some of them became quite big, like, you know, 50 million in revenue sort of thing, you know, 5 million quid a year. And then it was those times where I'm sat in board meetings, asking questions, these management teams saying, what about this? What about that? Have you thought about that? Why have you done this? And then there came a day where with a very good friend of mine, we had one company in particular as a mobile, B2B mobile phone provider. And we thought we can't do a worse job than this management team. What are we paying them for? Then we became, an, then we became operators. So we kind of stepped into the business began to run them. Um, and I've learned over the years, as I get a bit older, that um, that's not my forte. The best thing to do is to have people running businesses. I'm, I'm quite good at setting up a business. Like if it was a ship, I could design it. Uh, I know what it looks like. I know what the furnishing, furnishing should be in the cabins. I can, I can hire the team that would be very sort of loyal and take it out the harbor to the, to the kind of the harbor wall or to tr take it across the Atlantic. That's not me. So, yeah. and I've been involved in mostly technology, some media and telecommunications and more recently space, so a company called Send founded by a sort of visionary friend of mine called Charles. We're putting, this is quite interesting. This is a few legal interesting th um, issues. We're putting a constellation of satellites in space, provides 8K real-time video of all of Earth down to a car's about two pixels. So you imagine that, it's quite interesting. So, yeah, that's an interesting one. And then also a co-founded Atherton Bikes. So that's a additive manufactured mountain bike business. So we, techies will kill me for saying this, but if you've got to do like a drain pipe system where you have that kind of the joint, that bit's 3D printed in titanium. Tubing that slots into it, essentially, is carbon fiber. So it's kind of F1 aircraft technology put in mountain bikes. And what that means is find the geometry for individual riders and we can print the bikes to order rather than having some enormous shipment coming from Taiwan of carbon frames. We have very little stock. So that's become over the years probably the most innovative mountain bike business in the world. That's doing quite well. So I've got a range of interests, but it's always been, you know, I've been a champion of small businesses, I kind of focus on that, entrepreneurship. I've started a new business called Implement AI because I think the AI is going to change everything we do, especially, especially law actually as well. And I'm excited to talk about that. We're going to talk a bit more about Implement AI because I, I agree. Um, but of course, it'd be remiss for us not to talk about your time on Dragon's Den, you know, in 2013, I believe. What was your experience like of, 
of being a dragon? I mean, you've shared some of your entrepreneurial own ventures, but obviously putting your investor hat on in the den, what was that like? It's quite surreal, actually, when I think about it, that again, there's a story there as well. So I, um, I was approached, so I did The Secret Millionaire first, right? So I was, I was in prison for most of it. I think one of the research went to the, went to the BBC and they called me and said, do you want to be a dragon on Dragon's Den? And I thought, I literally thought it was a good friend of mine that has a habit of ringing you up and kind of <laughs> trick you into stuff. I thought it was him, literally. And um, anyway, it didn't happen that year. And a year later, they were chasing me again saying, do you want to do it? And I was like, oh, I don't know. Do I want to do it? Have I got the time? Do I want to be celeb? I had a taste of this. You can millionaire. And I wasn't really, really me, to be honest with you. So they were kind of chasing me. And I, as you are, I was in Ulusaba, Richard Branson's private game reserve in the Kruger National Park in South Africa with him. And uh, I donated some money to a charity, you know. And um, I was sitting there thinking, who do I talk to about, you know, media and business, combination of the two and the pros and the cons, you know, where this is going. So I had a chat with yeah. Richard and a very long story short. It's more of my keynote story of this. <laughs> it's kind of like, he said, we had this conversation. He goes, you know, screw it, just do it, as you expect. Just put it in that book. And, he, and he, I kind of walked off and he said, no, 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 no. He said, ring the producer back now, which I did, and uh, tell him you're in. And that's how I ended up on Dragon's Den. So, but then it, then it was surreal. See, now you're talking about me, this sort of Milltown comprehensive school kid, ends up in the city and is now sitting with Sir Richard Branson discussing whether I should go and be a dragon on Dragon's Den. It's bonkers. So it was an interesting one. And then after that, really, there's no real prep. It's just kind of like, you need to be, and you did like one screen test to make sure you're not terrifying in front of a camera. And then turn up and you've got Peter on one side, Deborah on the other, and off you go. That was it. Um, so it was very interesting. So it, it's kind of two sides to that coin. So one was, I, I was still a reluctant celebrity. We still have to some extent. Um, although I'm a minor celebrity. And over the years, it kind of died out. People don't recognize, they kind of recognize your face. They're like, do you work in Barclays in Camden? <laughs> it's like that. I'm like, oh, yeah. And then, but during COVID, because they couldn't film it, they put it back on and they re ran quite a lot. So suddenly it's like being back on TV. So you got to kind of recognize again. Now, the, the, the upside is you get to do things you wouldn't you would otherwise be able to do. Get to meet people you probably would never have met. I probably wouldn't be talking to you actually. But clearly, if I hadn't been on Dragons Den. You know, I, I advise Sky, advise uh, public really, but a very large UK-based automotive global automotive manufacturer on future strategy. Um, I was on the board of British Business Bank during COVID, where we put his ninety billion facilitated finance into the market. I was on the board of Nesta, the UK's largest innovation foundation. So I get to do these things, and in each one of them, I get to network and, and learn something new. So that was the upside to it. The downside is still people think they, they sort of know you. BBC creates this caricature of you, not necessarily you, um, but people think that that is you. But overall, um, great experience. And, um, and what's quite interesting about it with Dragon's Den is money can't buy it. So I'm often in places where there's kind of, you know, billionaires and egos and no matter how big your yacht is, no matter what, you, you can't be a dragon. <laughs> so it's, 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 it's kind of a nice thing to sort of, have really and, and i've been able to leverage it to do good as well because you, know, you can attract attention started charities again very focused on diverse inclusion so you've been able to sort of leverage it to you know do a bit of good in the world as well yeah and you, you do a lot of good and again i want to talk about some of your uh, diversity inclusion works i think it's it's wonderful but maybe sort of you know standout moments or best investment from the from the den what what stands out to, to you but I, I think I did the best investment in the den ever, but it, people don't really know about it. And you get these things in the press all the time saying, oh, that's the top investments in Dragon's Den. It's all completely wrong. So I, um, I, was, I was the first to do tech, as far as I'm concerned. 
people doing their I was there, it was the apps were just appearing on there, apps, you know, people big, big, big mobile phones standing there, you know, showing how an app works. And these uh, chaps came on, the, uh, most of it is Israeli, were PhDs, and they had a term sheet from a venture capital fund. I was like, well, what's there not to like? And a beautiful product. It was a, I know you've got a, a young child, a children's book, so personalized children's books. It was called Lost My Name at the time. They changed the name to Wonderbly. So anyone that's got children, uh, you know, young children, has probably had one of these as a gift at some point. And it's now, it's a global success. You know, it's done a deal with um, Harry Potter books, publishers. And um, they, not really public, but they exited about two years ago for a you know, very serious amount of money. When I did the deal, I got sort of 5% for 100 grand. And the other dragon's like, you know, what are you doing? You know, that's not what it's about. You shouldn't do deals like that. You know, and I think I was trying to get an option out. I got 4%, I was trying to get an option. They were like, can't half do a deal in the den. I was like, okay. But I think in terms of a, a tech deal, or any deal actually, that was done in the den and is exited for cash, I can't think of another one. There's ones that are still going you know, and they're quite well-known. But in terms of like, like a real sort of, like, like, you know, if you're an investor, that's what you want. You want to put some money in, you want to tear, and, and it wasn't all straight, um, you know, it wasn't all easy for them. Definitely wasn't a straight line. They had some difficulty they had to restructure the business and they, they got through. And they exited. They've made the wealthy people and, and they've gone again. A new, new backer. And as an investor, that's what you want, but it's not really that public. And then, yeah. I love that, isn't it? Because sort of, you know, go again, go again. And that's what, what you've done. And that's why I want to talk about Implement AI, which you kind of touched on, because you are passionate, you know, about small and medium sized businesses. Time for a short break from the show calling all lawyers who want to work smarter, not harder. Are you tired of following old processes just because? Or do you feel like your current setup is letting you down? Then I recommend you try Clio, the legal software that streamlines your workflow and keeps your entire firm organized. With Clio's cloud-based legal software, you can quickly and easily manage your cases, billing, documents, and calendar, all from one place. They've even got an easy-to-use mobile app so you can stay on top of your cases wherever you go. Join the tens of thousands of legal professionals worldwide who trust Clio for all of their legal needs. It's the legal software that works for the modern law firm. Dive in, start using it right away with their seven day free trial. Sign up now at clio.com forward slash legally speaking. That's C-L-I-O.com forward slash legally speaking. Now back to the show. tell us a bit more about implement ai in in detail because i, I think it's it's a super interesting business and i think the legal people need to pay attention to it yes yeah, so if you if you sort of start do out macro yeah so there's a lot of noise about artificial intelligence yeah and and what's happened is you've had sort of like really 50 years maybe even more of research into this you know going back to sort of touring and then you've had Probably a decade of big companies trying to productize it, you know, machine learning, computer vision. You had these different streams, just like computer vision. There was people doing, you know, translation, there's machine learning models. And then this transformer, the, you know, generative pre-trained transformer, GPT, this transform model was designed and these large language models, which means that you can now almost communicate 
Uh, it tends to be text, but clearly now they've got text-to-speech, speech-to-text, multimodal, do, you know, image-to-text, you can do text-to-video now. So this is multimodal communication, way of communicating, and that's completely changed the game. And that, in the last six months, that's changed the game. So you've now seen, you know, Microsoft, Google, um, Amazon, NVIDIA, all these very large tech companies change their strategy because they know this is going to change the world. And this is not the internet, probably a 10% productivity gain. Electricity was about 35%. It's hard to measure this stuff, but this is the research I've read. And they think the AI is going to be 50%. Now, there are threats, there are existential threats for lots of people, and there are huge opportunities. But if you imagine now where we've had this sort of linear growth, you know, for since civilization started, really, and since the Industrial Revolution, you, know, you had Industrial Revolution, steam power, physical labor, you had the electrification, consumer revolution, second industrial revolution, second revolution. You had, uh, you know, web one to three, probably the third industrial revolution. This is the fourth. But this is going to be, we don't know quite know when. This is why it's, it can be quite confusing. But we are now approaching exponential growth. This is where, you imagine the software, you know, it's a humans, our DNA is our code, isn't it? So we evolve over, over millennia. But we have to, you know, if you're a lawyer, you have to go to university, go to law school and become a lawyer years these, these things don't have that issue so they, <laughs> they they've absorbed the internet you know literally and and then eventually they begin to write they can write code so if you think about it they'll start to write their own code and improve their own code and that becomes exponential eventually code begins to write code so you end up in a world where you know something's been solved before you wake up the world has changed and then before lunch it's changed again and you hear about artificial general intelligence, and I'm not all about something being sentient now, just something which is, we're probably there already, really. It's, it's more capable, more intelligent than a human. You know, we can't absorb data and assimilate it in the way that these, these machines can. What will eventually happen is, is that the software, we very, or we might even get super intelligence, will start to design robotics in ways that we don't understand. So that's when, so you've got a longer burn for robotics. What was interesting is, is that people thought that, you know, artificial intelligence and robots were going to take jobs of Uber drivers, you know, people were driving four-lift trucks, admin assistants, telemarketers. They were the standard ones. When I was at Nesta, we did a lot of research on AI. And the issue is, if you imagine the Northeast, say, where there's lots of call centers, that when AI disrupts those jobs, there were whole areas of the country we might need retraining. What's happened, though, with generative AI is that generates, you know, content, you know, generate text. This is why it's important for law firms, generate images and movies. It's already disrupted the, crea the creatives. And they were supposed to be the ones that are most protected. Yeah. Um, so these large language models are essentially they're what's called generative. Very, very good. Similarly, a lot of information. And, and they're, they're kind of trained and fine-tuned to generate different types of content, be it written or be it video. Um, be it speech and then you've got this multimodal impact where text can become speech speech can become text video can become text and vice versa and our world will change and you are going to see more and more roles and i always say it's like a value pyramid you have to move up it because essentially it's been filled with technology and you as a service provider whatever you do no matter what you do um surgeons doctors lawyers accountants you name it not just Uber drivers, you've got to move up to the top of that and, and add, add more value because the mundane will be automated. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And that was going to be my next question, which you just answered beautifully there, because I know you talk about the, the sort of value pyramid, because there is this 
existential threat with AI, particularly admins and even lawyers, that if you're not going to move up the value, you give, I think you use the words, you're lunch eaten by AI. And I, I can see that. So, you know, what tips or strategies would you give to maybe a legal professional, someone thinking about a career in law or whatever it might be in and around the industry? What would you say to them, like some, some things to think about so they can make sure they're moving up and they're not going to be moving down that value? You have to understand and embrace these technologies. There's absolutely no point trying to be a king, you know, sitting there saying, you know, this tire is not coming in or whatever he's saying. It might be the other way, I think, in his case. But whatever he said, that's not going to work. This tide is coming in. And the issue with exponential growth is, is that we humans can't understand it. We, we just don't get it. You know, we, most of our evolution, you know, we live within a day's walk and you know, nothing ever changed. It was, you know, for millennia, nothing ever changed. It's only just a revolution, things started to move more quickly. But even then, as a, as a banker, we did financial models all the time. And it's like, oh, is it going to grow by 2% or 5% or 10% next year? Now, we've been on a train. We're about to get into an elevator. So, you know, when someone's got a cough in Wuhan and suddenly your kids can't go to school, that's, ex that's a geometric progression. That's kind of exponential change. So you have to embrace this technology. You have to understand how it can empower you or superpower you and whatever you do, make you better what you do and understand how you leverage it to do whatever it is you do better. Because somebody will eat your lunch if you don't. And th this is like, I always imagine, it's like a ship leaving the harbour, but it can accelerate away uh, at sort of, you know, at almost exponential speed. It's quite slow now, moving away from the harbour. We're all standing on the quay side. You might be on it. You might be, you know, the, the founder of OpenAI sitting there on it, having, enjoying his martini. And we're all on the quay side thinking, hang on a minute. And, and you can still make the leap. You know, you can learn, you can jump, but there'll come a point where that gap, you can't make the leap. As it begins to accelerate away, that's the exponential speed. You can never make the leap. And the point about this technology is once you're left on the key side, you are staying there. And that might be the vast majority of society. So if you're going to the profession, it's quite interesting. I was talking to a senior partner in a very big law firm in central London. And um, I'm going to say it as it is, you know, if you're coming into the profession, it's going to change massively in the next five to 10 years. I was on a call with Microsoft this morning. They, you know, th this technology now in terms of the enterprise grade stuff, it's quite expensive. It's quite techy. But the law firms are the ones running at this the hardest because their output is text, documents. And this is what these large language models are the best at. And if they're trained to understand prose, the way things are structured, the way documents are, are structured and to understand them, they can create anything. I mean, my, my, so my company, Implement AI, we looked at this and thought, right, companies need to you know, get on that boat, basically, and they need to understand this. And it moves so quickly that I was looking at, should I invest in technology? Should we start an AI company? And I kind of thought, you know, there's a thing called, you know, you've heard of ChatGPT. Well, the thing's called AutoGPT. These are like agents you can create on the fly. It's all kind of command line stuff. I had two of these things going in, in the next room. They're chatting to each other. They're giving voices. One's a male, one's a female. One's going, I'm going to go off and do some research. Okay, when you get back, I'm going to go off and look at this. Let's put it together and we'll create a, a, kind of a policy document just as a test. And they went off and did that and came back. And then they started saying, let's send a tweet. <laughs> and I was like, oh, hang on a minute. And then I'm thinking, well, this is all very, it's, it's all overhyped, quite techy, quite clunky. Two weeks later, ChatGPT has launched plugins, which is the same thing. And now you can say, if, it's 20, if, if the average temperature in Lisbon, where my co-founder's based, is over 20 degrees, book me a flight. It goes into Wolfram Alpha, or a database, a real-time database of weather, 
checks the checks the average temperature. Yeah, that's fine. Logs into Expedia, books you a flight, and then can then email a draft, set up a draft email, send to whoever needs that information. You can see now that even you know PAs disrupted as well. So, and this is you know I'm old enough to remember you probably not Pong, you know the tennis game. Ding, ding, ding. If you're, if you're a bit younger, it's Nokia Snake. So this is what we're talking. This is what we're playing with today. You know, and it's not going to take my lifetime to go from Pong to Call of Duty or you know Forza Horizon or, or Fortnite. It's going to take two or three years. And that's the the thing which is what I want to kind of stress. Your very important word embrace because the speed of acceleration with technology now and adaptation of it is not going to be like we've seen years before like from web one to web three and all these other things that you know i i love all of this stuff it's really important that you embrace so you know i I got super excited about you know i'm an advisor to radio ai or the first basically ai focused broadcasting radio show with its own sort of you know presenters and voices and various things connected to it so you know nobody really can not afford to pay attention to ai and every single facet of, of business and especially that's in law yeah because that is you know accounting as well you know it's going to be very very good at that i don't think you'll have accountants within 10 years i mean i advise various companies yeah and the futures we're talking about uh, is things like you know my daughter's what she's 15 maybe she's a bit old but if your kids are like you know below 10 now longer than 10 in the in a lifetime in my daughter's lifetime it would probably be illegal to drive a car in a built-up area as you were human you know her children will never trust a human accountant <laughs> why would you because yeah. the exactly. the automaton the ai is going to be far better and that's the world we're going and we and people always say oh well it can't do this now it can't do that it's not very good at this and it's it's got bias You're like, yeah okay but it's pong it's nokia snake it's, it's it's never going to be this bad ever again every day is getting better yeah and that's the excitement for me as somebody who's open-minded. And that's what I'd say to our listeners, be open-minded, be curious, listen to thought leaders and experts, definitely listen to what Piers is saying, because I agree. Piers, I want to talk about speed of adoption when it comes to AI. You know, are, are, are companies looking to adopt this quickly? And, you know, any other thoughts around that? I spent um, 10 years trying to sell cloud solutions to companies. And, but the issue about cloud is, is that it, the infrastructure, it, well, so the end cost looks exactly the same. It's just different infrastructure where it's deployed. Then you have blockchain, you know, and crypto, and no one could really understand what the use cases were for that. So no one, a lot of, a lot of consumers got involved, a lot of hype. AI is different. Right? So AI, there are existential threats to entire industries you know, uh, entire sort of roles within organizations, especially law firms understand this. So you are seeing very large companies already very quickly in the space of six months. So these large language models became available, starting to spend millions of pounds. I saw some very large law firms, I was looking at a website, they're recruiting prompt engineers. I mean, no one knew what a prompt engineer was in last December. So you're seeing the adoption take off very, very quickly because people know and they've seen, and they've seen the proof of concepts, this completely changes what you do and how you do it and the idea is is that it helps you grow but your costs don't increase so your margin goes up you become more profitable and you have to get ahead of the game because as i said this exponential exponential change very hard to catch up so it's not cloud it's not blockchain ai is different and um anyone who doesn't think that is is going to find themselves left behind very quickly yeah, I absolutely agree. And I, I, th- I encourage people to go back, rewind, re-listen to that and just put that down and actually take note of what Piers is saying because I uh, 100% agree. 
I want to talk just a little bit though before we we, we look to close, Piers, about sort of social mobility and diversity and inclusion. Because I know it's very important to you, and you've spoken openly about adversities you've faced whilst building your career and businesses. You've shared, I believe. I kind of made sure that all the barriers I perceived for me getting a job in the city, the color of my skin, my academic record, the school I went to, and my accent, I tried to lower them as much as possible. And you touched on this earlier, but I just want to sort of ask the question, how have you stayed resilient and optimistic throughout? Maybe there's other people who that really hits home or resonates with. What, what advice would you give to them in terms of staying resilient and optimistic? So I, I was quite um, determined, quite blinkered, and kind of laughed it off. And if, if something stood in front of me, I'd kind of go round it, over it, through it, whatever I had to do. Not everybody's like that. And that's the issue. I think things have got better. Looking about AI, well, one of the things about that is, is that there's about over 100 human biases, biases, whatever you pronounce it. And if you can take that out of the loop, that's a big part of it. Um, and I, I, I work with Sky very closely on this. And <clears throat> they've invested a huge amount of money, probably 30 million over since George Floyd was murdered, to becoming a more improving diversity which is being asked to the dance being asked to the party and inclusion is being asked to dance two different things so you shouldn't have to do what i did because you just burn too much energy when you're sat in a meeting worried about oh they're going to like my accent or they're going to find out that uh, I, I grew up in this area that's just nonsense and the, the the good news is is that there's a talent shortage so a competitive advantage for any organization now is to broaden its access its talent pool and i always say that most organizations most people can't be bothered because it, it's more energy you've got to go and fish in unfamiliar waters and fish deeper and that's resource it's energy it's money essentially so organizations have to do that organizations increasingly are doing that trying to take bias out of the recruitment process which is uh, really important but it, it, you know i i i grew up I, I, it happened to me this week it's too much detail but i was um where I live and something happened and there's some police officers and someone ran off or something. And I'm on my doorstep and I wear like black, black shorts, and black t-shirt and they knocked on doors saying, and they, and have you seen these people? And I was like, no. And, and he sort of looked at me up and down, looked behind me, sort of checking what's going on in there. And he said, it wasn't you, was it? And you kind of think at the time, kind of brush it off. But then afterwards you think, and I, and I tell people, oh, I know, you probably just got the wrong end of the stick. But if you're a person of color and you've had these microaggressions are thousands of them in life you know one when you see one and some people it just wears them down so there's a kind of societal issue you have to deal with but you can in organizations just through process structure and being aware of this you can reduce the barriers for people and i'm a great example in many ways i'm comprehensive school kid you know i was quite bright i wasn't i wasn't like super academic but i could do the work when i needed to my dad was very academic um and I managed to end up at Credit Suisse. That's Boston. There's an M&A banker. At the time, it was like, uh -huh. you know, one of the, the top jobs you could have as a professional in terms of earning potential. So I'm an example that just through blood, sweat, and tears, really, I managed to make it. But if that journey had been a lot easier for people like me, then organizations like that particular bank would have access to more talent. And in, in a world where they're struggling to find talent now, kind of drying up, that's what they need to do. So if you're, if you're in an organization and you're involved in recruitment at all, which I know that's what you do as well, this, this is really important. 
Yeah, and you're talking my language there. And I think, you know, it's it's diversity of thought, diversity of culture. All these are added value adds to organizations. And like you say, if people invest the time, energy and effort, and some law firms, to their credit, are doing a good job of this, but I strongly believe more needs to be done. And it's something that Disability, we... that's the next big one. Obviously, learn about neurodiversity. And what technology will do, and AI as well, is level people up. So it's going to mean eventually that if you're being disabled, well, by the yeah, it's going to take a bit more time, robotics, but being disabled will not be a disability. Being neurodiverse, they rapidly no longer uh, an issue. And I do want to kind of wrap up talking about mentorship. It's another, you know, as we talk a lot about legal careers and things in and around the industry, you know, one of the key things that I believe in, and I'm sure you do too, is the importance of mentorship. So who have been some of your role models and, and mentors and maybe some of their, their best piece of advice, the one or two key pieces of advice you've received that benefited throughout your career? So I get asked this a lot. I've never had mentors. I've never had a formal mentor because a, a, mentoring, a mentoring relationship, a real proper one, is quite a formal relationship. It's like, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? How long am I going to do it for? You know, what do you want to get out of this? Um, it's a process. I never had met my role models with my parents. So my mum was this strong-willed, you know, West Indian woman. Uh, my dad was a quite academic, you know, went to Cambridge, you know, he spoke seven languages, including Russian fluently, naval intelligence for a while, doing national service. And, you know, and to my dad, they were very different people. They were my kind of role models in many ways. The mentors I had really, well, in my career, were probably senior people that I worked for. So probably you know, the partner in S.J. Burwin that trained me, a couple of the managing directors when I was a banker, I looked up to... I learned from and they gave you time to, to teach you. We never really had, never had that formal relationship. The nearest I've had to a mentor, I'd say, is Sir Ken Alyssa. So Sir Ken Alyssa is Lord Lieutenant of Greater London. So if you see a, um, uh, a mixed race chap with a sword organizing coronations, his job really is to represent the, the monarch and to, whenever they're in London, Greater London, they're out and about. So he, and he's, you know, he's got a great story himself. I mean, he's seeing him in a two up, two down. One brought him up and now he's, now he's Sir Ken. He's been the chairman of a couple of things I've been involved in. Founded a charity together that he's still chairman of. So he's, I spent every so often, I meet Ken. I met him about, I actually wrote a blog on my website about this. He's got a coat of arms, as you do. And on his coat of arms, it says, do well, do good. Whenever I meet Ken, uh, normally, whenever he meets me, Whatever I'm doing has completely changed. <laughs> so he finds that quite interesting. He's like, so what are you doing now? He's like, so what, what's, what's the hit rate now? I'm kind of like, well, it's probably one in three businesses and you know, the kind of work. And he's kind of like, very good. <laughs> so <laughs> it's informal, but I, I do look forward to those meetings, but never had a mentor. Having said that, if you've got the time and you've got something you'd like to do, as you correctly said, it is actually really important. So spending time. So one of the big issues in social mobility is social capital, right? And I, I had to create my own, you know, piece by piece over many, many years. And especially when you want to start a business, you know, social capital is who you are, where you grew up, your network, you know, it can be family, wealth, it can be, it's a lot of different factors, but it's really important. You know, a lot of people don't have it and it can be about confidence, networks, contacts. I meet people all the time and I, I will just say, look, why don't you go and I'll just do a quick email while I'm with them. And uh, I, I was sat in the reception in the Tower 42 in central London, the old NatWest Tower. And some um, lady came up to me, a young black girl, and said, oh, I'm starting a business and I don't know what to do and I recognize you. I'm kind of like, and, and they think I'm just going to brush them off. They think I'm like some famous guy, which isn't not the case. And I'm like, well, sit down here, talk me through it. 
And she's like, right, 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 yeah. I go, okay, brilliant, right. I'm going to send an email to this person and go and talk to them. And just that, I get an email about two weeks later saying, thank you for that connection. That's changed everything. Even doing things like that can make a big difference in people's lives. Do not underestimate the power of your network when you have one and you've grown up with it because you're so used to having it. You don't understand the value of your social capital. And if you can, share it. Yeah, I love everything about that, Piers, because things that I bang on about. I always have an acronym, NSN, Never Stop Networking. And I think that's a really good example you've given there. And interesting fact, my first business was incorporated in Tower 42. So uh, the law firm... Uh, I had my moment there. When I was at Credit Suisse, I remember standing on the top floor at about four in the morning. We always were late. Looking out in my stripy suit, my braces, looking out over the, uh, looking out over the city in Tower 42, thinking, how on earth did I end up here? And I remember that moment. The only moment I kind of proverbially, metaphorically patted myself on the shoulder and said, well done, mate. Um, so I've got some good memories there. I will say that um, sort of mentorship is one of the most powerful things you can actually, actually do. Networking is very much about, I'm talking about sharing your network. We all have network. I've got an amazing network. You know, I could, my daughters could say to me, I wanted to be an intern doing anything anywhere in the world. I could pick up the phone, drop an email and sort it out. So network is important. But if you have this advantage that you're not really aware of, it's, it's huge and hugely powerful. A lot of us have it is share your network. That's the key. And that's why I'm super passionate about community building. And, you know, that's one of the best ways. If you can build a community and grow that community, the more you can share, you can release that thought leadership. And it's just a, a far better way, I believe, in, in modern, particularly with technology and social media, et cetera, et cetera. So, Piers, if we can be cheeky and ask one more question to sort of sum up today, which has been great. Really enjoyed listening to your, your story. Lots of lessons. But for those listening into this, what would be your one piece of advice for lawyers looking maybe to move out of legal into entrepreneurship and, and maybe mirror what you've, you've done or, or look to do something similar? What would be that one piece of advice? It's very interesting. I've got lots of friends who are lawyers. And when I left law, even my mum was like, yeah, why are you leaving? Like, you never had a proper job since. And years later, a lot said to me, I wish I'd left earlier. That seems to be what I hear most from people I still know who are lawyers who are still thinking about a career change. And the issue was then clearly is that, you know, you qualify, now you're three, four years in, now you think, ooh, you know, you're only quite good money. Then he's like, ooh, then, then the partnership kind of carrots being dangled in front of you. Then you're a partner, now you've got kids, a mortgage, you, you know, you go skiing twice a year and you, you, and you accumulate these costs, these kind of balls and chains, basically. So my advice is, if you're in a profession like that, is do what I did, is get out, get out quite early, because otherwise you find yourself locked in. And, you know, I, I, would, I would become a lawyer again in terms of my career progression. If I could go back, I wouldn't say, well, I'm not a lawyer now. What was the point? I'd, I would literally do it again because it opened lots of doors for me and gave me some amazing uh, skill sets. And, but it does train you to think in a certain way, depending on what kind of law you do, obviously. And it can instill in you risk adversity. And if you want to go into business, that's not helpful. <laughs> it's so true. You don't risk anything, you risk everything, right? And, you know, one of my mentors said to me, you know, don't let your wage be your cage. My biggest regret was not starting my businesses sooner. You know, I, I should have gone into entrepreneurship a lot younger, in, in my view, looking back. So I definitely agree I mean, with what the, you, you've the, said there. The beauty now is you can, what they call a side hustle. I also take it seriously. It's a side business, right? You can now, the beauty of the world we live in is that very little infrastructure, very little cost. You can try different things. You can snap up a website. You can create a product, throw it on there, do a bit of marketing, see if it's got any traction. If it hasn't, you know, move on to the next thing. 
that's what you, you can do that and eventually maybe maybe it's a bit like you as well is that that side hustle that passion can become something that can actually um you know pay the bills move into it I, i'm not i don't really think that i always say stay employed for as long as you possibly can because not being employed and trying to start a business and not having any money super stressful and it's not good for anyone's mental health yeah that's a really good valuable point so before we wrap up where can our listeners learn more about implement ai um where's the best place for them to go and, and so implement ai is new new business so we're helping small businesses well business of also helps like 500 employees one of our clients understand technology understand the discoverer but discovery solutions and then start implementing it these are not final solutions yet because the this well, we're all on a journey and this technology is moving very, very quickly. But the issue is you have to start understanding today what it is, how you implement it in your business. What can you use today? What are the quick wins? What are the big wins going to be? And understand the impact on you, business, your employees, sector you operate in. Understand that kind of that horizon scanning as well. So we do all of that. We offer uh, fractional AI officers. Uh, we help you with your policy. So if you go to implementai.io, or just ping me on the LinkedIn or wherever you wherever wherever I pop up with some <laughs> annoying video probably. <laughs> people say, say <laughs> keep seeing your video. People approach me on tubes and say, All right, Piers, and they start chatting to me. And I'm kinda of like, so I don't want to be rude, but do I know you? And they're like, Yeah, we're connecting on LinkedIn. And I'm kinda of like, well, there are thirty odd thousand people as well. But you were saying <laughs> that you know, we, we put out a lot of content. Um, so blogs, videos. We started a podcast that's called the AI Assisted Organization. And the key is whether it's you personally or your organization have to become AI assisted, moved out of human first with an AI assisted world and eventually it'd be an AI first world. So we've got five years in software, a bit longer in robotics to become AI assisted. And AI is not going to take your job, not going to kill your business. It's somebody using AI that's going to take your job, kill your business. Yeah, so true. And it's been invaluable. And I was going to say where people can find you, but they've got Google. They can just look on social media. You're everywhere. Pearslinney.com. Yeah, have a look on yeah, there. Exactly. So, Piers, this has been an absolutely immense chat. Thank you so much for, for coming on the, the show. Thanks for having it me. It seems weird to say wishing you lots of continued success with all your ventures and pursuits, given what you've already achieved. But definitely from all of us on the Leagues Being Podcast. And shout out as well to Alex Chisel at Screw It the Screw It Podcast for, for connecting us today. But for now, over and out. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you like the content here, why not check out our world-leading content and collaboration hub, the Legally Speaking Club, over on Discord. Go to our website, www.legallyspeakingpodcast.com for the link to join our community there. Over and out.